Today's reading from the Word of God comes from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. And following the reading, I invite you to respond and worship with the singing of the doxology. And at that time, children are invited to join Kids Rock through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. <laughs> Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. My name is Bryn. I'm one of the pastors here. Happy Mother's Day. I know that there are a lot of mothers who are traveling here from out of town. So if that is you, welcome. We're glad that you're worshiping with us and with your kids this morning. My own in-laws are here today. Hello over there, Susan and Stephen. My parents are on the live stream. So hi, Mom. Happy Mother's Day. Love you. Um, well, as is our custom, we love to just take a minute and stop and pause 
to offer ourselves to the Holy Spirit to speak into whatever we brought into our stories today. I know lots of us have lots of things on our hearts and minds, and so we want to offer those things to God. Lord God, for so many of us, there are so many things swimming in our minds and in our hearts. There is love and joy and gratitude, and there's fear and anxiety and grief. Whatever we are bringing in this morning, we pray that you would speak into those places, that you would meet us there. As Susan prayed, that you would bring us to peace and love, openness and kindness, and a deeper understanding of who you are. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, Pastor Allie kicked off our spring sermon series, which we are calling In Good Spirit, Transformation in the Book of Acts. And for the next few months, we are taking a, a look at the, ways, at the ways that the Holy Spirit transforms everything in our world, from our vision to our stories, to our culture, to our relationships. And we opened our series by talking about the hero of the story, Jesus, who died and rose again so that we could have new life, which is kind of a big deal. And this week, we're talking about the villains. So we love a good villain, right? Every story has a good villain. And there are lots of different kinds of villains. There are so many different kinds that we don't know which ones we hate the most. There are the classic villains in stories. Classic villains who have names like the Wicked Witch or Cruella. Then these are the, the purely one-dimensional, totally evil villains with bushy unibrows and maniacal laughter and no personality at all. And they wear creepy hats, and they have twirly mustaches. They speak in monotone voices about how they want to kill Dalmatians. Or there are the gentlemen and lady villains. These are the ones that you kind of like, right? Like, they're funny. They, you trust them for a little while. They're well-educated. They're witty. They wear suits. And then they start ignoring the rules of polite society and breaking your trust and showing how manipulative that they actually are. And then they just kill everyone that you love. And then there are the supervillains who are just straight up evil all the time. They don't really even want anything but the hero's head on a platter. They are calculated, they're cold, they're cruel for the sake of being cruel. And then there are the friends turned villains, the ones that betray the hero's trust. Those are the surprise villains. Those are the ones who you thought were the good guys, but they were just playing you the whole time. The Judases, the Ninas, the Saurumans of the world. Last week, we talked about our hero. This week, we're going to talk about the villain. So let's lay the scene. By the time we join our characters today, the church has been going through some pretty interesting transitions. The church is born in Acts 2, and it starts to grow, and thousands of people are joining this Christian movement. They're studying scripture together, their lives are being transformed, they're healing the sick, they're uh, giving money to the poor and widows and orphans. Their society is being transformed. Everything is being transformed. And then this man named Stephen walks on the scene. And Stephen starts to demonstrate God's work through miracles, through signs, and through wonders, and it's amazing. But there are people around Stephen who haven't met Jesus yet, and they do not like what he is doing. They start arguing with him. What he's doing seems dangerous to them. It seems outlandish. It seems like it's maybe even against their laws, and so they arrest him, and they bring him before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council at the time, and they charge him with treason, and they bring in all of these false witnesses who are willing to testify that this man, Stephen, he won't stop talking about Jesus of Nazareth and against Mosaic law. And so Stephen gives his defense, and it's a sermon, 
and it's a super long sermon, which I think we can all agree is like the best kind of sermon. <laughs> so he rehearses their history as the people of God, and at the end, he tells them that they are resisting God's work. They are resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is not a super popular message to them, and so they attack him. They take off their coats, and they literally stone him to death. And Stephen, Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr after Christ. And then it says in the book of Acts that a man named Saul was there, and he was right there in the middle of it all. Saul. Now, it's hard to know what kind of villain Saul was at this point in the story, but Saul was most certainly a villain. And he would prove to be much more than those one-dimensional classic evil villains, but at this point in the story, all we know about Saul is that he is out for blood. Saul watched. He watched as the people stoned our guy Stephen, and he even held their coats while they did it. And in chapter 8, we read this. It says, and Saul approved of their killing him. Saul approved of this. Saul, Saul was a villain. But what else do we know about Saul? Saul was a Jewish Pharisee. He was part of the highly educated religious elite. He was also a Roman citizen, which means that he probably came from some kind of privileged background. He was highly educated, he was very successful, he was clearly intelligent, and he hated Christians. Hated them. In chapter 9, where our story starts, it said that Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now, I don't know if you have ever met anyone so fiercely angry that they are so full of hate that they are breathing out murderous threats. But in this story, Saul is seething. He's boiling over from this turmoil inside of him against the people of God. And at this point in the story, he's on his way to do even more damage to the Christian church. He's heading to Damascus. He wants to hunt down the Christians there and throw them with jail, in jail. He's even gotten permission from the chief priest to do that. So Saul, right, he's on the road with his angry mob and his pitchfork, and this bright light flashes. And it flashes everywhere all around him, and it knocks him to the ground. And he hears this voice, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? The voice repeats his name, Saul, Saul. And Saul didn't know it at the time, but we do, that that was the voice of God. And whenever the voice of God repeats your name, it's this expression of intimacy, of closeness. It's as if God is saying, Saul, I know you. I know your name. I see you. And then the voice asks a question. Why do you persecute me? Saul, I see you. I know you. Saul, Saul, why are you doing this? And Saul doesn't answer that question. He might not have even known the answer. He just asks, who? Who are you? Who is this voice? Who am I persecuting? And then the voice replies with what would have been the worst possible answer for Saul to hear. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Whoops. Those words probably felt like a sledgehammer to Saul. He gets up from the ground. He opens his eyes, but he can't see. He's blind. He's confused. He's just groping around in the dark. He's totally lost. Everything that Saul had been doing, everything he had dedicated his life for, this crusade against Christians, it all turns out to be wrong. He thought that he was doing right. He thought that he was being zealous for God's causes, leading the charge against the enemies of God, those Christians. But in reality, Saul was the enemy the whole time. He thought that he had been the hero of this story, but he had actually been the villain all along. And then, 
into this scene walks a man named Ananias. And you might know that name from the story of Ananias and Sapphira, the couple who lied about their giving and died, so don't do that. But that was a few chapters ago. That was a different Ananias. And we don't know a lot about this particular Ananias. We know that he was a Christ follower. We know that he lived in Damascus. And we know that just like Saul, he's about to hear a voice calling his name, Ananias. But there's a difference in Ananias' response from how Saul responded. Ananias doesn't have to ask who this voice is like Saul did, because Ananias already knows this is the voice of God. He just says, yes, Lord. It's like they had already been in conversation that day. And then God drops a sledgehammer on Ananias, too. God tells Ananias to go find a man named Saul and heal him from his blindness. Ananias, Saul is blind. Go heal him. That's nice, God. Ananias would love to help heal someone who's blind. There's just a little tiny problem with that. And it's this. Ananias has heard of Saul. He knows that Saul is the villain of the story. Saul is coming to persecute Christians. Christians like Ananias. So Ananias doth protest. Um, with all due respect, Lord, uh, I, I don't know if you've heard of Saul, <laughs> but, but he's here to kill me and like everyone that I love. So could we just let him stay blind? Because if he's healed, he's going to see me and we know what Saul does when he sees Christians. To Ananias, Saul does not seem like he is worth saving. So here's the thing. When I set out to write the sermon this week, I had intended to focus on Saul's conversion. I had intended to write a sermon about how to develop a personal relationship with Jesus. I was going to remind you that it is never too late to change your story. It's never too late to start following Christ. That no matter what you have done, nothing you can ever do can separate you from God's love. And that is a true message. And it's an important message. And it's a message that I hope you hear a lot at our church. And if you have not yet met Jesus, if you are here because you are waiting for a flash of light to tell you who this God is, I want you to know that Saul's story can be your story. God is here right now, speaking to you, calling your name, inviting you to receive the Holy Spirit and follow Jesus. If you are new to the faith, if you want to explore who Jesus is, if you were here and you were like, who are you, Lord, just like Saul did, I would love to talk with you. Pastor Jean would love to talk with you about what it looks like to have a personal relationship with Jesus and to follow Jesus. That was Saul's story. And it's what I had intended to talk about this morning. But this week, as I studied the story in preparation for the sermon, I just couldn't shake Ananias. Ananias, this disciple that we know very little about, he only shows up once in the Bible to do this one thing and then he's gone. I kept returning to his story because I get Ananias. I get what he was questioning God about. God tells him, go heal Saul, and Ananias is like, him? You want me to do what? You want me to heal the villain? My villain? Because you and I, we all have our Sauls, don't we? And our Sauls come in a variety of different forms. For some of us, it's a whole group of people who hold a particular ideology or political position that threatens our values. 
and the things that we hold dear. For some of us, it's people from a certain ethnicity or generation or country that we don't really understand. For some of us, Saul hits a little closer to home. Some of our Sauls look more like people who have bullied us, people who have taken shots at us, people who have rejected us, people who have hurt us deeply, people we have a really hard time forgiving. The ex-boss, the ex-boyfriend, the ex-business partner, the friend who betrayed us, the leader of our organization who made that call, the mother, the adult child who we have a really complicated relationship with. Go heal them? I don't think so. I, I don't know about you, but I would much rather stand on a soapbox or write a viral social media post to make my point clear. I'd rather that they feel just as small and as scared as they made me feel. I want to make sure that they know that they are wrong, very wrong, and then feel real bad about it, and then have to say they were sorry in a microphone, and then give me a present. But that's not in the Bible. God isn't offering us that option. And he didn't offer that option to Ananias. God just says, go to Saul. Saul is wounded. Be part of healing. So this morning, I want to ask you the question that God is inviting Ananias to think about and that God asked me this week as I studied this passage. Who in your life, who in our world, who is that villain for you right now? What person or group of people have you canceled? Who have you written off? Who have you labeled as unsalvageable, unsavable? Who is unworthy of God's grace? Who have you decided is not worth your effort or your time? Who's just too mean to pray for, too difficult to reconcile with? Who has do, done so much that you can't imagine that this person or group of people would ever be welcome in the kingdom of God? Go heal them. Lord, with all due respect, don't you know who they are? There's a journalist named Katherine Schultz who wrote an amazing book called Being Wrong. Has anyone read this book, Being Wrong? So good. And in her book, Schultz says that we have this human tendency toward three assumptions when we encounter the people like Saul's in our lives, people whose words or behaviors or beliefs are clearly wrong. Our first assumption is the most generous. They're probably just ignorant. They don't have all the facts that we have, and if they did have all the facts that we have, that they would probably see things the way that we see them. So we thoughtfully take it upon ourselves to enlighten them. And then, when that doesn't work, when we discover that they have all the same facts that we have and they still think the way that they think, we move to another assumption. They're probably an idiot. They clearly have access to all the facts, but clearly they lack the skills or the wisdom to piece the pieces together like we have. So we try and move them from their idiocy to our team. But then when they prove that maybe they aren't idiots, that maybe they're just as competent as we are, there's one assumption left. They're probably malicious. They have all the facts. They know the difference between right and wrong, so they're probably twisting the truth to support whatever their malevolent agenda may be. Now, it sounds a little extreme, but whether we're aware of it or not, it's how so much of the world and our culture works which, as Schultz says, is a huge reason why human history is so riddled with, she says, instances where absolute convictions fomented and rationalized violence. Now, of course, you and I would never use violence to get our way, right? That's just for Antifa or right-wing militia groups. 
But here's the thing. There is no terrorist organization or militia group that is not created or run by human beings. Human beings who were babies once, who didn't always think the way that they think now. Which means that that same seed of rightness that starts those organizations and eventually turns into crusades and inquisitions might actually be present in all of us, even just a little bit. It's the same seed of rightness that might cause me to dismiss my opponents as the only ones between us who could ever get irrational or stubborn or backwards in their thinking. It's the same seed of rightness that might cause me to gossip about people who make different choices than I do or to send angry emails to prove my point or to reduce the people in my life who've hurt me to caricatures of bad character traits. We see it in countries, we see it in politics, we see it on social media, we see it in schools and universities and seminaries and businesses and at the water cooler, we see it in families, with relatives, with significant others. We even see it in churches. I've been a Christian for most of my life, and I've actually heard Christians saying they will know we are Christians by our love, and then turn around and call fellow Christians bigots or heretics, or question another Christian's commitment to scripture if they don't agree with our point of view. And then we choose to attend churches full of safe, like-minded people who think the same thoughts we think and listen to the same news outlets that we do so our beliefs are never challenged. And when we do this, Our own ideologies can get so ingrained in us that after a while, we can start to believe that God is definitely on our side, too. The writer Anne Lamott put it like this. She said, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. We don't have to go very far in the Christian life to experience this before we're affected by this kind of polarization, do we? Either by giving it or by receiving it, but usually both. And the entire character and dignity of another person gets reduced to a nameless, faceless villain, which makes it easier to marginalize them and dismiss their views. So many of us do this. I do this. And when this becomes our way of interacting with the world, We end up with a cancel culture where people no longer feel safe to dialogue or to learn or to ask questions or to explore new opinions. We're going to dive deeper into cancel culture in a few weeks, so stay tuned. But I saw it so much this week. So many of us are so busy proving our own points that we absolutely shut down any dialogue. And our whole culture just stays as it is. But to us and to them to our culture and society, God says, go. Yes to that person. Yes to that group. Be an agent of healing here, even to them. I love that Ananias does it. I love that he follows the Spirit's leading. He goes and he heals Saul. But first, and this is what I love most about Ananias, first Ananias tells God how he feels about it. He's honest. But God, I don't want to. Don't you know who that guy is? God wants us to be honest like that. God wants us to be upfront about what we are afraid of. God wants us to be clear about what bothers us, not for God's sake, because God already knows it, but for our sake. Because when we can offer up the truth about how we're feeling as we know it, God can use that as a jumping off place. 
God, I don't know how to have that conversation. I don't know how to have a conversation with that person who's divorced. I don't know how to have a conversation with someone who's gay. I don't know how to have a conversation with someone who doesn't support my choices. I don't know how to talk to that person who's in prison. I don't know how to have a conversation about what's going on with the Supreme Court right now. I don't know how to have this hard conversation with that person, with that group, with that former church. I'm angry. I'm scared. I'm confused. That's real. And God wants you to be honest about it. Because when we're honest, God will say, I can heal you. I can heal them. I can open up space I've made for my people, no matter who they are or how they are. And that space, it might open up slowly. It might not open up in a straight line. It might not happen all at once. But when we are honest before God, when we can say, God, I don't want anything to do with those people. And I want you to know that. That's when God that's when God can begin to change our hearts into hearts that look like Christ's. I think one thing that's fascinating about this story is to Ananias, Saul was the villain. But earlier in the story, to Saul, Ananias was the villain. Saul was Ananias's other, and Ananias was Saul's. In somebody else's story, we are those people. I remember years ago, our church was renting space from a universalist church in Salem, and one night we planned this big community dinner upstairs at the church, and we showed up to set up for the dinner, and we learned that the universalists had also rented the downstairs space for another event at the same time, and it was going to be an art show hosted by the occult, because Salem. And it was, was anyone there? I think you guys were there. Yeah. A uh, few of us were there. It was hilarious. So people started showing up, and you could just tell by what they were wearing what event they were there for. <laughs> there were all these like shiny, happy, clean-cut Christians going upstairs, and downstairs everyone was wearing black clothes with pentagrams and like studded dog collars. And there were a few occult people who accidentally came upstairs thinking that it was the art show. And I remember going up and I'm introducing myself to one couple who were clearly in the wrong place, and I asked them what event they were there for because I didn't want to assume, but I knew. And they said, oh, we're looking for the art show. And I said, oh, that's downstairs. And they were very polite, and they asked what our event was. And I told them that we were a Christian church, and we were having a community dinner. And the look of horror on their faces was amazing. Christians, can you imagine? They, like, physically shivered and left the conversation as quickly as they could. They didn't want anything to do with me. At the end of the night, we ended up actually inviting the occult people to join us for dinner, and they did, and that's a story for a different sermon. But at the start of the night, to them, I was awful. I was Saul. I was their other. And we imagine that we are the hero of everyone's story, but we are all somebody else's villain. Saul was Ananias's, and Ananias's, Ananias was Saul's. And yet, and yet, at the heart of our faith, at the heart of the Christian faith, is a man who gravitated toward villains, toward all the prostitutes and the prodigals, toward the tax collectors and the sinners, toward the marginalized and the people who are most hated in that world, toward the souls of that world. And on the cross, he said some words. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Father, forgive Ananias and forgive Saul. Forgive the patriarchy and the pagans. Forgive the racists and the white supremacists. Forgive the bullies and the exes, the social progressives and the social conservatives. Forgive the Catholics and the Protestants. 
the Baptists, the Covenanters, forgive the Jews and the Gentiles, the women and men, the slaves and the free, in all of their blindness, forgive them all. They know not what they do. Because it turns out, God is for Ananias, and God is for Saul. And the goal of the cross is that all of creation, that us and them, would together be healed and reconciled to God. Now, a commitment to this can only lead us to a radically different way of responding to the Sauls in our lives. It means that there is no more place to demonize people as villains because we all stand under the same cross. We all need the same cross, and we all stand under the same declaration of forgiveness. It means that the exact moment when we become most frustrated with Saul, when we struggle with real wounds from real people, that those can be the exact moments when we give thanks to God for the power of the cross and the empty tomb, which is offered to us and to them. It means that in that exact moment, we can cling all the more to Jesus because sin makes it so apparent how much we all need him. It means that we can respond to ourselves not with self-righteousness or anger or fear, but with the same grace and compassion that God showed to you and to me on the cross. It means that I can defiantly refuse to let my ideologies justify my mistreatment of other people or my being right ahead of being loving. It means I can give up my need for you to know and be convinced that I'm right, even though I might be very convinced of that. And subsequently, maybe my fear of being wrong, so that I can listen to you and dialogue with you about where you're coming from. It means that I can walk alongside you as you grow in an understanding of the truth without being threatened in mine. It means I can go straight into the heart of those wounds. I can walk straight up to Saul and be part of God's healing in his life because I have firsthand experience with God's healing in my life. It was this commitment to Jesus that led Ananias to say yes, to join the Holy Spirit in healing Saul. Ananias finds Saul, and I love what he does. I love this moment, because Ananias doesn't open by telling Saul just how wrong he was to persecute Christians, even though Saul had been very wrong. He doesn't make Saul prove himself, show that he's worthy, convince Ananias that he's a changed man. Ananias just walks up to Saul. The first thing he does, puts his hand on his shoulder, and he calls him brother. Brother, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias opens the conversation with an embrace. And by God's power at work through Ananias, Saul is able to see again. Before Saul does anything to reconcile with Ananias, prove he's changed, Ananias sees him. Not as the murderous killer he's been, but he imagined the person that God had intended him to become. The Apostle Paul, who would go on to write a third of the New Testament that would spread the good news of Jesus all over that world and ours. But before Saul became the Apostle Paul, he needed an Ananias, a Christ follower to embrace him exactly where he was and then to lovingly help him move toward the truth about God. And this is important. This is important. So if you zoned out, listen to me. Ananias' embrace 
was not tacit approval of Saul's behavior or his beliefs. It wasn't permission for Saul to continue behaving as he was. But it was a starting off point for Saul's life to change, to be loved by a Christ follower and invited to see. God called Ananias to be with Saul, but in our world, embrace, forgiveness, acknowledgement that no one is outside of God's grace, that does not mean necessarily, well, does not mean ever putting yourself in an abusive situation, or even necessarily that you will be in a relationship with that person or that group of people moving forward. The Bible does not say that Ananias and Saul became besties after that. Calling someone a brother or a sister may not mean that in this life. It also doesn't mean that we don't need to take stands for truth, sometimes passionately. But Ananias loving Saul well, it was a kickstart to Saul's life being transformed. And sometimes kickstarting someone else's transformation through God's love, through the Holy Spirit alive in us, sometimes that's all we're called to do. Everybody needs Jesus. But everybody needs an Ananias to lead them to Jesus to embrace them, to help them learn to see the truth, to show them what it means to walk in that truth. So I'll close with one story about how I've seen this play out in my own life in a really powerful way. So I am what's called an egalitarian, which means that I believe that God calls people to roles in the church based on their gifting and their passions and not on their gender. That means that I believe biblically that women can serve as pastors and leaders in the church at any level. You've probably figured that out by now. Um, but there are a number of pastors and Christians here on the North Shore who hold a very different theological view. They are what's called complementarian, which means that they believe that God calls people to serve in the church based on their gifts and their passions and their gender. They don't believe that women can be pastors. So all of us hold a high view of scripture. We believe that it's the word of God, but the way that we read it and interpret some of those passages come out differently when it comes to gender roles. Now, back when I was in college at Gordon, this angered me threatened me because I wanted to be a pastor. And if these people were right in how they interpreted scripture, then that would mean God didn't want me to do this thing that I thought that God wanted me to do. Now, I never met these pastors, but I had pretend like shower arguments with them in my head alone for years. To me, they were just this big mass enemy that I had to fight against and prove wrong. But then one day, about five or six years ago, a group of them invited me to join them for prayer. And I bravely went, armored up. And it was kind of nice. And then they invited me back. And then they invited me to join them for prayer every month. And pretty soon they were inviting me out for meals. They were introducing me to their wife and kids. There were a few of them that even intentionally introduced me to their daughters as the lead pastor of High Rock North Shore. I realized after a while that they were introducing me as their colleague, as their co-laborer for the gospel, as their friend. Huh. I have to say, this surprised me. I had figured that because of our differences, they would reject me. They would tell me I was wrong. They would make sure that I, would, that I knew that I was disobeying God, that they would leave me out of the really important conversations. But they have never done that. Instead, they've asked me my advice. They've invited me to speak at their events. Some of them have asked me to train their own staff members and church planters. They've prayed for me. They've spoken well of me. They've shared a seat in their circle with me. They've put their hands on my shoulder, and they've called me sister. 
And I'll tell you what, that has been one of the most healing expressions of Christ's love that I have ever experienced from these people who disagree with me, sometimes passionately, but who embrace me as a sibling anyway. And I know that it has been healing for them too, for me to do that in return, to put my hand on their shoulder and call them brother. Last week, the most conservative pastor in the group, someone who would never invite me to preach in his pulpit, he suggested that we send out a newsletter to all the Christians on the North Shore highlighting some of the good things that are happening at High Rock. Not his church, at our church. He wanted to make sure that people on the North Shore knew what was happening here in this community. How amazing is that? Years ago, I don't think some of these pastors would have ever considered supporting, celebrating, or partnering with a church that was led by a female lead pastor. But we have decided that we are siblings in Christ. And that has been the starting point for all kinds of relationship and transformation. Women in leadership is really important to me. And of course, I hope that my complementarian friends will one day change their views, and I'm not shy with them about that. But to this day, I have never convinced anyone of my position through angry arguments, through winning a debate, through rejecting them, through posting a diatribe on social media, or walking away from the relationship. And believe me, I've tried all of that. <laughs> but I have convinced a lot of people about women in ministry by ministering to them by loving them, by showing them what it looks like, by getting curious about why they believe what they believe, by putting my hand on their shoulder and calling them brother, sister, sibling, no matter where they are on their journey of understanding, because I have come to believe that in most cases, more often than not, embrace and love is where God's healing starts. One of those pastors gave me one of the best compliments last week. He told me I was fierce, and kind. And I loved that. I loved that because I know that without the Spirit's work in my life, I would be neither of those things. So this morning, what person or group of people is the villain in your story? Who's your Saul this morning? Who is waiting in blindness that you could help heal? What could it do in their life? What could it do in your heart? if you led the conversation like Ananias did? What if you opened the dialogue with brother, sister, sibling, with a word of God's grace and healing for them? What if a whole group of people started doing that? What if a whole community started doing that? What if a whole church started doing that? Started making room, started opening up our imaginations and our tables and our circles for the Sauls and the Ananiases in our stories. Well, I think that could actually change the world. So why don't we pray for that? Lord God, there are people who are coming to mind right now for lots of us. Groups of people. We pray, Lord, that you would give us space to explore what that looks like. that you would give us courage to be honest about how it feels. Honest with ourselves, honest with you, honest with communities that love us, that will let us be as we are right now. And we pray that you would soften us, that you would help us to see people like Saul as you do, what you can make them into, how they can be transformed. 
We pray that you would teach us about your forgiveness in our own lives, your love, your kindness, your compassion in our own lives, so that we have no choice but to spill it out on the people around us. And that through that, you would change the world, that you would transform our stories and theirs. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.